And um, obviously, we all find ourselves in a world of crisis today from the coronavirus pandemic to um, the racial violence that we've seen to even election year, political extremes, economic challenges, right? We could go on and on and on. Um, in this particular text that Charles read, this grouping of verses, the section heading that you would see if you looked at it has the title, Suffering for Doing Good, right? It's this idea of um, being mistreated for your faith or for trying to do the right thing. And um, I wanted to start out this morning by telling you guys a story um, from when I was in middle school. And obviously, as you guys will hear in the story, um, this isn't uh, me suffering for some extreme injustice, though at the time it felt that way to me. My middle school that I went to was a private middle school, and we had a, a, ser a system of discipline that involved getting merits or demerits. Merits you were earned through positive behavior. Demerits were given due to negative behaviors. And every week in our homeroom class, we got a report and it listed your merits and your demerits. And then there were, there was a number based on how many merits you had or how many demerits you had received. And based on your number, you could um, either earn privileges or uh, you got certain things removed if you had had a certain number of demerits. So for those of you who don't know, I consider myself an Enneagram type one. And so I was very concerned with being the perfect student. So my report typically had a lot of merits and not too many demerits. On this particular day in school, I was in choir class. We were up, up on risers uh, practicing for a choir concert. The class was getting a little rowdy. Kids were talking, laughing, just generally not paying attention. And our choir teacher was getting kind of frustrated. Remember, I'm the perfect student. So I'm standing, just standing there waiting for our choir teacher to get everyone organized. And around me, there are various people talking, laughing, not paying attention. Our choir teacher gets very frustrated, and she finally calls out a series of names. And much to my surprise, my name is included in this series. And she says, you guys are all getting demerits. And she calls us all down. My first reaction, of course, is to say, oh, I wasn't... I wasn't doing anything wrong. I was just standing here waiting. You know, I wasn't talking. She wouldn't listen to it at all. She's like, all of you guys come down, getting demerits. So the process of getting a demerit involves the teacher filling out a report. And in it, they write down basically what your infraction was, why you're getting a demerit. And then there is a place for you to sign. And you sign and you indicate that you agree that you did something wrong and that you um you believe you that's true that what the teacher wrote is true and that you did in fact um do the wrong thing so she starts writing out the reports handing the demerits each student signs each student signs each student signs it comes to me and she gives the demerit to me to sign and i said 
well, I'm not signing this. And she was like, yes, you are. You have to sign it. And I said, well, but I didn't do anything. I don't agree with this. It's not true. I'm not going to sign it. She just says, okay, fine. And just takes it away. And the demerits get all sent off to the office. The office is the one that keeps the uh, tabulations of everybody's standings. And my first thought was, this is great. They're going to get it in the office. They're going to see I didn't sign it. And they're going to call me in and we're going to have a conversation about why I didn't sign it. And then I can explain why I didn't agree with it and explain what actually happened. A few days pass by, don't hear anything from the office. And I find myself sitting in homeroom and the reports come around for where we stand on our merits and demerits. And I take a look at my report and I look down the line and I see that they have in fact given me a demerit for the choir class incident. And I'm like, I didn't even sign this and this isn't what happened, but they've given me a demerit. But on top of that, I have also been given another demerit, which I was unaware of, for refusing to sign a demerit. So on top of all of that, I was given another one. At the time, I was just so upset, the injustice of it all, right? And here I felt like I was suffering for trying to do the right thing, for trying to uphold the truth. And I, I tell this story somewhat tongue-in-cheek because it's a very minor thing, right? But this is what I felt like was happening to me, that I was suffering for doing good. Right, and here in this letter in First Peter, we find that Peter is writing to the early church in Asia Minor. And even though I felt like that was a big deal in middle school, they're experiencing something that's much more serious. They're not experiencing uh, sort of official government-wide persecution, but they're experiencing a lot of local unorganized oppression. And so he's writing to this group of people that are in the midst of a crisis, and he's encouraging them with how to respond. And today I want to go over just a few points that I think he makes in his letter that I think are helpful for us and where we find ourselves today. The first is that when any one of us is suffering for trying to do the right thing, um, we're not suffering alone because Peter points out the church suffers communally. In verse 8, he says, be like-minded, be sympathetic, be, love one another, be compassionate and humble. These are words that foster this idea of unity. Right? The words be like-minded and be sympathetic are not just about thinking the exact same thing. They're more about having an understanding disposition or about having the ability to put oneself in another person's place. The words compassionate and love one another. It's about being moved deep within our core, deep within our gut, right? You see, when we can empathize with one another, when we can try and view one another's um, viewpoints, we, we can help sort of unite ourselves. And that allows us to be part of this community. And we realize we're not alone, right? We're bearing with each other in this suffering. We don't suffer in opposition alone. Dennis Edwards writes in his commentary on 1 Peter, he says, The way of Jesus offers the potential for authentic community here and now. 
We do not have to wait for Christ's return to experience a foretaste of ultimate connectedness with God and with others. We are better equipped to face opposition when we are with a group of people equally committed to the same goal. And that leads us in me into our next point that Peter makes is even in suffering, even in this uh, uh, persecution that they're facing for their faith, this, the same goal should be about peacemaking, right? The church, even in its suffering must be a community that actively seeks peace. We see in the reading, he says, do not repay evil for evil. Do not repay insult with insult, repay evil with a blessing. Turn from evil and do good. The Jewish law at that time required a a sort of retaliatory response consistent with whatever the infraction was. But here Peter is reminding us that the way of Jesus requires us to extend grace. The most countercultural aspect of genuine community is the willingness to pursue peace in the face of insult or assault. Further on in Dennis Edwards' commentary on 1 Peter, he he tells the story of a woman that lives in his neighborhood. Her name is Mary Johnson, and she had one son, that's it, and her only son was killed as the result of gun violence. He writes that rather than seek revenge, she started a group called From Death to Life, which is a support group for other women who have suffered the loss of a loved one due to an act of violence. He goes on to say, but even more remarkable is that after many years, she came to forgive the man responsible for killing her son. And now she claims him as her spiritual son. They both have a deep faith in Jesus and they share their powerful story of healing and reconciliation, right? That's actively seeking peace. Stanley Hauervoss, in his book, The Peaceable Kingdom, writes, Churches must, above all, be a people of virtue. Not simply any virtues, but the virtues necessary for remembering and telling the story of a crucified Savior. That leads me to my final point, is that Jesus has saved us and gone before us, and he's here with us in this challenging work. In verse 18, we see Peter write, For Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. Further on down, he says, it saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand with the angels, authorities, and powers in submission to him. Right? God has done this. God has come and he has suffered and he he has saved us. And because of that, he has extended his love to us, and we can now extend his love to others, even those who mistreat us. Theologian Miroslav Volf writes in his book, Exclusion and Embrace. We would most profoundly misunderstand the Eucharist, however, if we thought of it only as a sacrament of God's embrace, of which we are simply the fortunate beneficiaries. Having been embraced by God, we must make space for others and invite them in, even our enemies. This requires us to intentionally do good, to intentionally seek peace. 
You see, ultimately, 1 Peter's words in this section are a reminder of the life of Jesus. We see that he came, he suffered. He actively rejected evil and worked towards peace. He embraced his oppressors and enemies and brought about salvation. And the good news is Jesus is here with us in this challenging work. This is really encouraging to me of knowing that we're not alone in this. And when I was thinking through all this, one thing that I like to think about were examples of people that I saw living out this same model, our organizations that I saw working in the same way. And uh, one that I thought of is I thought of Kara and Oscar and the work at Project Red, right? They're working to restore relationships with families and communities. They're advocating for changes in legislation that encourages healthy relationships, that encourages peace in El Salvador. They're Organization is a community that's doing this together, that's bearing with each other, each other in the challenging and difficult work, and they are trying to seek peace and show God's love while doing that. And that is powerful and so encouraging to me. And I want to open it up to you guys. What, what people, who is in your life that you see doing something like this? Or what organizations do you know of that are doing this difficult work? And what encouragement can you receive from them? If if you'd like to share, um, go ahead and just uh, put your name down in the in the chat bar and share with us if you have any of these examples. Daryl, go for it. Well, I just, one organization I've had tremendous respect for, um, I know some of the folks in it, and I've not participated with them as such or or often at all, Uh, but that's City Square in Dallas. Uh, These guys uh, have constantly gone to the poorest of the poor in the inner city of Dallas and, you know, and, uh, by Baylor campus and, and all of that. And they've created community and that's their model is to create community among those who are suffering and to serve them and to engage them in serving as well. Uh, and, and to me, that's just an incredible model, an incredible example. Uh, I, I think of, uh, of James, uh, who was the founder and the, the guy that, uh, you know, well, he stepped in. He was, he wasn't actually the founder, but, uh, he walked into it early on and he even moved into the inner city, uh, instead of staying afar and, and doing good works from afar. He joined, he moved into the inner city, uh, when he didn't have to, but he felt that that was important to identify with the very people that he was serving. And, uh, I really appreciate their model. Thanks. Uh, Kara? Um, so it's, it's a pretty similar organization that I know. It's in San Antonio. Um, it's called Haven for Hope. And um, it actually, my, my dad is the CEO, so I know a lot about um, what they're doing. But they work with um, the homeless in San Antonio, and they have not stopped. They've 
this during the last several months, they've um, done more than ever and they've housed thousands and um, are working to not just, it's not just a homeless shelter, but it's um, a, a place for relationships to be restored and um, for people to be uh, renewed and um, overcome addiction and they, they're outreach workers in all in the worst of the worst of the lockdown. We're still going out and um, under bridges and finding people and telling them about the about COVID who haven't heard of it and telling them to come, um, you know, come to their shelter basically. And so it's been um, encouraging for me to hear about it, you know, firsthand from my dad and to see all the good that's being done. Thanks. Um, Julie and then Charles. So um, our next door neighbor, the Zartlers, some of y'all have met them. Um, They have a daughter with uh, severe special needs, cerebral palsy, autism, seizures. And in addition to um, the isolating job that is being a special needs parent, especially during this time, um, and they both work full time. They just relentlessly um, fight for legislation for special needs kids, for um, alternative treatments for them, um, for Texas to legalize some things that um, they have found to be helpful, um, for them to get the services they need, even in um, quarantine for families to get some mental health relief that are now at home with special needs kids. And I know that that is born out of a sense of isolation that they have had in the past that they want to um, help other people come out of. And it's just, I think about how tiring and exhausting and isolating that must be. And um, I'm just really moved by the way that they want to connect and provide resources and alternative therapies for people if it would help um, maybe make their road a little bit easier than theirs has been. Um, Mine mine feels um, pretty mundane compared to what others have shared, but I mean, it's just what's resonating with me. Um, The part in this text about making and pursuing peace um, it, like was grabbing my attention. It makes me think about one of my mentors. His name is David Fitch, who um, I, the reason I think of him, I see his posts in my Facebook feed and they just serve as constant reminders <clears throat> about pursuing peace in the midst of just the antagonisms that flare up in a crisis like this um, politically and otherwise, you know, that, that, you know, there, there, now there's anti-maskers and pro-maskers, you know, there's, there's any number of conflicts that are flaring up. And I, I just, um, I appreciate his constant practice and reminders, uh, to, uh, have a posture that de-escalates those kinds of tensions rather than contributes to them by being present with people, by listening and asking questions and by making space for um, for Jesus, the Prince of Peace, for God, the God of Peace, to enter in and to untangle some of that antagonism. Um, so I, I just 
I appreciate the way that I see him rather than rather than um, poking at and trying to to escalate antagonism, helping to to untangle it and um, bring peace in the midst of all of that. Thanks. Yeah, that's what um, I love about thinking about different examples of this is we can think about examples that seem really big and obvious and people that are influencing massive change. But like Jesus is with us in all of that, right? It's still in being able to engage in uh, like these very emotionally charged conversations or or difficult things and still maintain a posture of peacemaking of that being our ultimate goal while pursuing justice and uh, upholding the truth. And that's what I find encouraging is to think of examples of people that are doing that. And also the encouragement that Jesus is here with us in that very, very difficult challenge. Uh, Thank you to everyone that has shared.